Well, if you look with me in John chapter 14, we see the immediate context of of the passage we're going to study today. But just before we jump into that, just kind of the the larger context, we know that on uh, the Thursday evening before Jesus Christ was crucified, Jesus gathered his disciples in an upper room, and he instituted in that upper room the Lord's Supper, and he began to teach them some very important lessons. Now, I don't know if the disciples knew exactly the, the full import of what was about to happen. Jesus had told them what was going to happen, but I don't think they really had wrapped their mind around it yet that Jesus was going to be beaten and, and uh, mocked and ridiculed and crucified. They, they didn't quite understand, but they knew something was going on. I'm, I'm sure in that upper room on that evening, there was an electricity in the air and there was a seriousness uh, in, in, in that room as Jesus shared with them some things they would need to know when he was... Uh, after he would ascend to the Father. Because we know that after Jesus Christ was arrested and tried and crucified, he rose from the grave. Praise the Lord for that. And after he rose from the grave, he spent a little bit of time on earth with his disciples. But then he ascended back to the Father. He ascended back to heaven, went up into the clouds, and uh, went to sit at the right hand of his Father, And so much of these lessons in the upper room focus on what it means to live for Jesus, listen, when he's not physically present. Because they had enjoyed for three years the physical presence of Jesus. They could reach out and touch him, hear his audible voice, see him with their eyes. But he was going to ascend to the Father, and so he would no longer be physically present. He would be present with them because Jesus said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And Jesus said after he gave the Great Commission... Uh, Lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age. And so he was with them, spiritually speaking, but not physically. So there were some things they needed to know about how to live for Jesus when they had to live by faith, which applies to all of us in this room, doesn't it? Because we don't see Jesus with our physical eyes. We don't hear him audibly speak to us. And so we've got to understand how to live for Jesus by faith. Now, one day our faith will become sight. We'll talk about that some tonight. But right now, in in between now and heaven, we've got to learn to walk by faith in the power of the Spirit, by the light given through the Word of God. And much of his teaching uh, centers on those on those realities. And so that's the context of these lessons from the upper room. Now we've looked at what Jesus taught them about service. You remember uh, he took off uh, his, his robe and, and wrapped himself with a towel and got a basin and actually washed the disciples' feet, a menial task. And he was teaching them about service and also teaching them about, about sanctification. We talked a lot about that. And then last week we looked at, at Jesus giving his disciples a new commandment to love one another. And we talked about why it was called a new commandment in that context. If you want to hear that, you can get on the internet and you can listen to Wednesday night's message from last week. But then he transitions after he tells Peter at the end of chapter 13 that he was going to deny him. Peter was being, um, was being brave and, and, and uh, courageous and had some bravado. And Jesus said, listen, you're going to deny me before the cock crows three times. But then in verse 1, of chapter 14, he says to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. So everything that we're going to study after this tonight relates to that that command, let not your hearts be troubled. Now you need to understand it's a command. That that is an imperative uh, uh, verb. It carries with it the weight of a command. It's not optional. So 
if we are allowing our hearts to be troubled in an unceasing way, if we are overwhelmed by anxiety and burden all the time, then we are not obeying the command to, to, to let not our hearts be troubled. Now, Jesus understood they were going to go through some troubling times. As a matter of fact, he predicts some of the troubles they would go through. He knew they would um, scatter when he would be arrested. He knew that Peter would deny him. Uh, he knew that they would be scared uh, upon the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. They would be uncertain. They would be bewildered as to what was going on. They would be perplexed. So he knew they were going to go through that trouble. And then they were going to go through the, the trouble of, of being convinced that Jesus Christ really was alive. Even on the mountain where Jesus gave the Great Commission in Matthew 28. It says some of them doubted. They worshiped, but some of them still doubted. So they would, they would have to, to become convinced of the reality that Jesus Christ really was risen from the dead. And they would be troubled after he ascended to the Father. He would no longer be physically present with them. And he knew that, that their preaching of the gospel would get them into all sorts of trouble and, and persecution, and, 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 and many would become martyrs. And so Jesus knew they were going to go through some trouble. So he wants to give them some instruction so that as they go through these hardships, they are not weighed down by the trouble. He did not want their hearts to be troubled. Now, before we move on, we can just apply that to all of us in this room. There are plenty of reasons in our culture today that our hearts might be troubled. Would you agree with that? There are plenty of troubling things going on all around us in our society. Uh, There are hardships that we go through as families, uh, and, and, and life can just be full of trouble. So how do we walk through the challenges and the trials and the difficulties of life without our heart being weighed down? That's the question, isn't it? How do we deal with all the hardship, because hardship's a reality, And sometimes following Christ will get you into hardship. So how do you deal with a hardship and still not let that hardship burden your heart? How do you walk around with an untroubled heart and demonstrate for a watching world the joy of the Lord? How do you do that? Well, this passage gives us some great insight as to how you can walk around with your heart being free from trouble. So so are you interested? You want to know how to walk around trouble-free? In your heart? All right. Let's look at what Jesus said. I want to give you tonight four reasons. Four reasons your heart should not be troubled. Four reasons your heart should not be troubled. Reason number one. You ready? This is good. It's simple, but it's profound. There is a heaven. There is a heaven. Why should we not let our hearts be troubled? Because there is a heaven. Look what Jesus says in John 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. So he mentions here his Father's house, a, uh, a reference to heaven itself. And so immediately we're reminded from this verse that this life is not all there is. This life is not all that... Listen, if all we had to look forward to was this life, this short life that, that God has given us from birth to death, that's all we had to look forward to. If that's the only place we had to look for fulfillment, then we would be miserable creatures, wouldn't we? Because life is hard. Life lets you down, right? And, and this life is not all that there is. Jesus indicates that when he says, "...in my Father's house are many rooms." 
And so it's, it's important to remember that when you are weighed down with trouble in this life, this life is not all that there is. As a matter of fact, the, the brevity of this life is not even worthy to be compared with the, the glory and the, the infinite length of eternity. Think about it like this. Let's just imagine for a moment that there's a line that's coming from that door. See the stairwell right over there? It comes right across the front here, and it goes through that wall. And the line is infinite. It goes forever that direction, and it goes forever that direction. So can you just imagine with me this line going across the front tonight? Can you imagine that? Everybody got it in your mind? The line, infinite line, okay? No ending, no beginning. It's just a line just comes through here. Now imagine on this line, just a dot right here on the line, just a, just a about the size of a quarter, right there. Just, a, just a, a dot on that line, all right? Now, that line represents eternity. The dot represents your life on this earth. Think about that. Think about that. Think how much line there is and how little tiny that dot is compared to the line. Now, if our eternity beyond the dot is going to be good then that gives us great joy, doesn't it? See, we've got to learn not to live for the dot, but to live for the line, right? Eternity. This life is not all there is. There is something eternal and wonderful on the other side of our brief troubled lives. There is something eternal, wonderful on the other side of our brief troubled lives. I love what Paul says over in Romans chapter 8. Love this verse, Romans chapter 8. He says there in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I mean, when you think about just the suffering that takes place on the dot and compare it with the glory, the the joy of the line, it isn't even worth comparing And keeping that perspective helps us to walk around, to walk through this life without troubled hearts. It's kind of like it's kind of like Disney World. I took my family to Disney World a couple years ago, and and you know you you go through those long lines, right? And you just wait and you wait and you wait and you wait, and you think you're never going to get there. And you get up to the ride, and you get on, and all of a sudden you forget about the line. I mean, you forget about the long line. You're just, oh, I'm on the ride. Oh, it's magical, right? It's Disney World. It's so wonderful. And you have so much fun, and you forget about the long wait because the ride is so great. So what do you do? You get off and get in another line, right? But the greatness of the ride makes you forget about the... The drudgery of waiting in line. And it's the same way when it comes to heaven. When we get to heaven, it will be so wonderful. The the drudgeries, the pain, the heartache of this life will will just evaporate in the light of the glory of God. And so there's something eternal and wonderful on the other side of our brief troubled lives. Hey, quick thing here, and I don't mean to offend when I say this, but I just want you to hear your pastor say this. The reason I believe in heaven is not because there are books in the Christian bookstore that say someone has died and gone to heaven and come back to tell us about it. The reason I believe in heaven is because the Bible talks about heaven. And I believed in heaven before there was ever a book telling me someone went to heaven and came back and told me about it. I believe in heaven because the Bible tells me 
So I'm not making any judgments on whatever those books are. If you want to read those books, that's okay. But don't let your, your belief in heaven be strengthened because of what somebody puts in a book. You should believe in heaven because it's in the book, right? The Bible tells us about heaven. And so, and, and I do have some questions about some of the testimonies. Matter of fact, one, one person came out just recently and said they made it up. Did you see that? And so we've got to be real careful about, you know, picking up a book and say, Oh, this person talks about heaven. I believe in heaven now. What? We believe in heaven because the Bible tells us about heaven. Amen? Anyway, that's a, that was a rant. I'm, I'm done. I'm done. But what do we know about heaven? For, even from this text, we get a little bit of insight into heaven. Heaven, first of all, is where God is. Look what he says in verse 2, back in uh, John 14. He says, In my Father's house are many rooms. In my Father's house. So heaven is compared to the dwelling place of the Father, the dwelling place of God. So heaven is where God is. And by the way, that's all we need to know. Amen? Now, I'm grateful for the rest of the Bible that teaches on heaven, and the, the Bible gives us kind of some, some broad brushstrokes of what heaven is going to be like. You get into Revelation uh, 21 and 22, and you read about streets of gold and, and gates of uh, filled with jewels and walls around the city, and it's just going to be beautiful and, and incredible and breathtaking. But listen to me, what makes heaven heaven is, is that's where God is. And if we go to heaven, we get to be with him. Our faith becomes sight. We get to be with God. And so heaven is where God is. And, and secondly, and this is like a big duh, but it's in the text. Heaven is big. Do you know that? Heaven is big. Look what he says. In my Father's house are many rooms. Now, if you have a King James Bible, it says, in my Father's house are many mansions. And uh, that always sounds great, right? Um, the word there in the Greek language is the word mone. It's not the word that would be translated a, a mansion. It's the word for, for rooms or dwelling places. Now, certainly could be mansion-like. I don't know what it entails. We haven't seen any pictures. We just kind of get, again, kind of the broad brushstrokes here. But we see that in our Father's house, there are many of these dwell, many of these mones, many of these dwelling places. And so heaven is going to be big. As a matter of fact, over in Revelation 21, turn there with me very quickly. I want to show you just kind of a, a quick look at how big heaven's going to be. Revelation 21, look what it says in verse 15. It says, And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. He's measuring here the new Jerusalem. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is, the, which is also an angel's measurement. So we see here that the New Jerusalem is cube-like, and it has the same width, height, and length. Now, if you, if you were just set the New Jerusalem down in the center of the United States it would take up most of the continental United States. I mean, there would be a little bit on the, the, the west and the east that it doesn't cover, but in the, kind of the center part of the United States, it would cover that. So it's a large land area. And so you think, well, that's going to be able to contain, you know, the, all of the, the people that have named the name of Christ through human history? Well, n- remember, 
the, the, the width, the distance of the width is the same as the, the length and the depth. And it says there uh, 100, uh, I'm sorry, 12,000 stadia. 12,000 stadia is 1,380 miles. So this new city, listen to this, is 1,380 miles high. Think about that for a moment. So we, you have the ground it covers, and you have the, the, you know, the, the, the width of it, but also it's 1,380 miles high. You fit a lot of people in there, can't you? And, and guess what? This new Jerusalem that's going to be that big is not all that heaven entails. It is the centerpiece of the new heavens and new earth. Because it says later on in this chapter that people are going to be coming through its gates. So people are going to be coming and going into the new Jerusalem. So there's more to heaven, our eternal dwelling place, than just just the new Jerusalem. It's the centerpiece, but there's more to it than just that. And so heaven, the new heavens, the new earth, when everything settles, the dust settles in human history, and the old heavens and old earth pass away, and God ushers in a new heavens and a new earth, it's going to be Big. I mean, breathtakingly big. And so I can't wait to see what heaven is all about. And so the New Jerusalem, if you're taking notes, is, the, is merely the centerpiece of the new heavens and the new earth. And so why should you walk around with an untroubled heart? Because there is a heaven. There's something for us to look forward to beyond the hurt and the pain of this life. There is a heaven. Number two, let me give you another reason your heart should not be troubled. There is a special place for us in heaven. There is a special place for us in heaven. Now let me just quickly define by what I mean uh, when I say us. Who's the us? The us refers to anyone that has placed their faith in Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. It speaks, the us speaks of born-again believers, and I am one, so I include myself in the us. All right. So heaven is not for everybody. You need to understand that. All dogs don't go to heaven. All right. Heaven's not for everybody. Not, not, not everyone's going to heaven. The Bible teaches the only ones that are going to heaven are those who are born-again believers in Jesus Christ whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And if someone's name is not found in the Lamb's book of life, the end of Revelation 20 tells us this, then they will be thrown into the eternal lake of fire and suffer the penalty for their sins, eternal destruction. And so I want to be clear, not everyone goes to heaven. The us refers to believers in Jesus Christ. You say, wait, wait, that sounds kind of uh, arrogant that you, you include yourself one of the us and, and this, this special privileged group gets to go to heaven and the rest don't. Listen to me. The only folks that get to go to heaven are folks that have responded to God's grace. You say, I'm not going to heaven because I'm good. Do you hear what I just said? I'm not going to heaven because I deserve it. I'm not going to heaven because I earned it. The only reason I'm going to heaven is because I receive God's free gift of grace. That's the only reason I'm going to heaven. And if you're going to heaven, that's the only reason you're going to heaven is because of God's grace. No one deserves heaven, but God offers us forgiveness, an eternal relationship with the Father through the shed blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so when I say there's a special place for us in heaven, I'm speaking to those who are born again believers in Jesus Christ. And just FYI, 
If you're not a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, tonight can be your day of salvation. You can come talk to me after we're through. I'd love to sit down with you and walk you through some scriptures and, and show you what it means to be saved and how you, you, you understand what Jesus did for you and you embrace his finished work by faith. And so if you want to be saved tonight, then come talk to me and we'll talk, talk about that afterwards and, 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 and go from there. But there's a special place for us in heaven. Now, we need to understand that Christ died on the cross, rose from the dead, and ascended back to the Father, and he ascended back to the Father for a purpose. Many purposes. He's sitting at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning. He's interceding for us. First John 2 says he's our advocate uh, with the Father. He's our high priest at the right hand of God. He's daily making intercession for us. Uh, there's, there's a lot of things Jesus is doing in heaven. But one reason he went back to heaven was to prepare a place for us. Look what it says there. Back in John 14, I need to get there. John 14, this is really cool. He says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So he's saying, listen, I'm going to prepare a place for you. That's one of the reasons Jesus Christ went back to heaven. His purpose was to prepare a place for us that will contribute to our eternal joy. So I don't know if it's going to be mansion-like or what, but I know that the place Jesus is preparing for me and preparing for all of his followers is a special place for us that will in some manner contribute to our eternal joy because heaven is going to be joy, right? Joy in the presence of God, Joy in the presence of other believers. Joy knowing that we are free from the very presence of sin and Satan. There will be unfettered joy in heaven. So whatever Jesus is preparing for us is going to contribute in some way, shape, or form to that joy. I love what James Montgomery Boyce said. Boyce was a a great Presbyterian preacher of the last century. He read this, and it was, I read this, and it was powerful. He says, we, we read the verse, I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and focus on the word prepare. What if we were to focus on the words for you instead? In that case, the emphasis would not be upon whatever architectural alterations the Lord may be making in heaven, but rather upon the fact that it is for us as individuals that he is altering it. In other words, it would be the promise that in that great home of the Father's, there's a place being prepared particularly for us. He goes on to say, Have you ever decorated a room for someone special? If you have, you know what it is to make a room suit one particular personality. If it is a daughter, you make the room pretty. You hang up her pictures. You make a place for her hobbies. If it is a son, the room might have airplanes or model cars. If it is for grandma, the room might have her favorite books, and it might be far from the playroom or the children's bedrooms. We take care in such preparation... Are we to think that Jesus will take less care for those whom he loves who are to spend eternity with him? is that an awesome thought? Jesus Christ is going, uh, went to heaven, he's in heaven with the purpose of preparing a place for us. Special preparation for a place that we will dwell in eternity that will contribute to our eternal joy. So when we get there, come show me your pad. All right, come, come over and say, hey, let me show you my place. We'll, I'll walk down the streets of gold and I'll check out your place. You can come check out my place. It'll be awesome, right? It's going to be good. And so there's a special place for us in heaven. That's what Jesus is saying in 
this passage. But let me give you another reason that your heart should not be troubled. There's a heaven. Jesus is preparing a special place for us in heaven. Here's the third thing. Jesus is going to heaven, but he will return to take us back with him to heaven. Jesus is going to heaven, he says in this passage, but I'm going to return to take us back, to take his disciples back with him to heaven. Look what it says in verse 3. He's using just good old-fashioned logic here. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So he's clear here. If I'm going to prepare a place for you, don't you think that it makes sense that one day I'm going to come back and get you and take you to that place? That's what he's saying in this passage. So this passage speaks of not what Jesus Christ is doing in heaven right now, preparing a place for us. It speaks of Jesus coming back to get us. It speaks of his return. And Christians should be eagerly anticipating the return of Christ. Turn to the last chapter of the last book of the Bible. I love the context of of this passage because... John has been shown this extraordinary revelation, this extraordinary vision of, of the unfolding of the end times, of, of the new heavens, the new earth, judgment, eternity, heaven, you know, the, the tree of life, the river of life, the throne. I mean, it, it's amazing. The Lamb of God who is the light of the city. I mean, it's just amazing all that he's been shown. And look what he says. In Revelation 22, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, speaking of Jesus, surely I am coming soon. And I love John's response. Don't you? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. John was eagerly anticipating the return of Christ. Now remember where John was when he was shown this revelation. Where was John? He was in prison, right, on an island called Patmos. He was in exile for preaching the gospel. And there are some historians that believe he was released. Some people believe he died there. There are different views. But he was on an island called Patmos. He was suffering for preaching the gospel. And so you had to imagine to him how wonderful it seemed that one day he would leave the confines of exile and prison and a barren Roman island, and he would be able to go to a place that Christ had prepared for him in the Father's house. He was going to be taken by Jesus himself to heaven. And he says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And so as we struggle and we hurt and we go through pain and trials and tribulations, we have something to look forward to, don't we? One day, Jesus Christ is going to return. He's going to set everything right. And he's going to get us. He's going to get us. And this isn't a sermon for telling, talking about the details of, of you know, pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, uh, rapture, second coming, you know, how all that plays out. Uh, we'll do that some other time. But this is just a place for us to say, Jesus Christ is coming back. and He's going to get us. Right? I don't care what your view is. If you believe the Bible, you believe that, that Jesus Christ is going to come back and get us, all right? And so, Christians should eagerly, be eagerly anticipating the return of Christ. Now, I find myself, just be honest with you, I find myself thinking this sometimes. Jesus, I can't wait for you to come back, but you know, I'd love to see, you know, my kids get married and 
uh, you know, it'd be fun to have grandkids, and, you know, there's some goals I have in this life I'd be fun to achieve. And sometimes I think, you know, maybe Jesus will hold off until, you know, I, I experience some more things I want to experience in this life. Listen to me. That is the completely wrong way to think. We all think like that because we're, we're finite and we're, you know, we, we go with what we see and we see this life. But listen to me. Heaven is going to be overwhelmingly incredible. And, and anything that you think you're looking forward to in this life will not even compare to what heaven will entail. And so we should eagerly anticipate the return of Christ. Now, when's that going to happen? All right. Now, cults have been started because people tell people that when it's going to happen. So I'm not going to start a cult tonight. All right. Uh, when Jesus was on the earth, he had emptied himself and, and laid aside some of the rights and privileges of deity. And he said, even when he's on the earth, during his time on the earth, the son doesn't even know when this is going to all transpire. He was limited in his knowledge while he was on the earth. He says, no man knows, not even the son. And so if anyone tells you that they know when Jesus Christ is coming back, you need to run. Don't walk, run. They're a false teacher. Okay, it's just that simple. And even if they, you know, the, the, the kind of the newer thing is they'll, they'll, they won't tell you an exact date, but they'll, they'll say, hey, next five years or, you know, next or, you know, between now and October or, you know, whatever. And, and just, just, just don't listen to that kind of stuff. No one knows when he's coming back, but here's what we know for sure. We're one day closer today than we were yesterday. Right? We're one day closer it seems like we're close. To me, it seems like, we're, you know, the way things are going, that we're drawing closer and closer. It could be soon, but, but no one knows for sure. And so we need to understand that even though we don't know that, we are one step closer than we were yesterday. Come, Lord Jesus. And here's, here's what this means for you and I in this room as believers in Christ. Listen to me. The fact that he's coming back to get us means... We are not forgotten or neglected. I go to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again and get you. That's what Jesus said, right? I'm going to come back for you. And, and I know that people let you down, and life lets you down, and you go through difficult circumstances, and you walk through valleys in your life, and, and there are times when you'll feel lonely, and there are times you'll feel forsaken, and there are times you'll feel neglected. But if you are a child of God, through Jesus Christ, you can rest assured you have not been forgotten. You have not been neglected. Jesus himself is going to come back for you one day. Isn't that awesome? He's going to come back for you. And so don't let your heart be troubled. Yes, life is hard. But Jesus Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the King of kings and Lord of lords, is going to split the eastern sky, and he's going to come get Wade Humphreys. And if you're a believer in Christ, he's going to get you too. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And so... We don't have to let our hearts be troubled because Jesus has gone to heaven to prepare a place for us. He'll come back and receive us unto himself. Let me give you a fourth reason that our hearts should not be troubled. John chapter 14. There's only one way to get to heaven. So, if we know the way, we don't have to be concerned, right? We can be confident about end times, about about eternity, because we have discovered and embraced the way to 
heaven. Look what it says in John 14. End of verse 3 says, That where I am you may be also, and you know, verse 4, the way to where I'm going. I'm going to take you to where I am in heaven, and you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas said, he speaks up here, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And so Thomas is, is thinking here, I need more information. Okay, You gave me some broad brushstrokes there. Father's house, dwelling places, coming back. Can you fill in the gaps? Can you, can you give me more detail, right? And Jesus said to him, I am the way. Because Thomas said, how can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Very clear. Very clear. Now it's interesting to note that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. In the original Greek language, the definite article is there. It does not say, I'm a way, a truth, a life. If Jesus had said that, then we'd say, well, we're kind of uncertain about this whole Christianity thing, right? But Jesus used the definite article, and he said, I am the way, the truth, the life. And just to drive it home, no one, in case they had misunderstood, no one gets to the Father, the Father's house, heaven, God's presence. No one gets to the Father except through me. F.F. Bruce writes, Way, when he says, I am the way, speaks of a connection between two persons or things. And here the link between God, here it is the link between God and sinners. So when he says, I am the way, he's saying that I am the way for sinners to be reconciled to God. Truth reminds us of the complete reliability of Jesus and all that he does and is. And life stresses the fact that mere physical existence matters little. The only life worth the name is that which Jesus brings for he is life itself. So you find the way to a relationship with God through Jesus. You find truth through Jesus. You find life eternal and abundant through Jesus. And all of that only through Jesus. And so you need to understand that the Bible clearly teaches the exclusivity of Christ. The Bible clearly teaches the exclusivity of Christ. Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. And just kind of a quick side note here. That's the reason the world doesn't like Christians. That's the reason our society is mocking and marginalizing Christians. I mean, there are other issues that are argued and debated, but when you boil it down, the reason that folks hate Christians is because they hate the Christ we serve And they hate the claims that he made. That he is the only way to be saved. And so the Bible clearly teaches the exclusivity of Christ two ways. Number one, through explicit statements. By the way, exclusivity is E-X-C-L-U-S-I-V-I-T-Y. E-X-C-L-U-S-I-V-I-T-Y. I was accused before this message not of using big words. So I'll I'll spell it for you. E-X-C-L-U-S-I-V-I-T-Y. The reason I use that word is because if you're reading a commentary or a book, you might come across that word. I want you to be familiar with it. The exclusivity of Christ. And the Bible teaches the exclusivity of Christ through explicit statements. 
In other words, it just comes right out and says it, like John 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if someone says, well, there are many roads to God, which is pluralism. doesn't matter which pathway you choose. Just, just choose a path. It can be, you know, it can be evangelical Christianity. It can be, um, it can be you know, Hinduism. It can be Buddhism. It can be Islam. It can be uh, Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, whatever. Just Judaism. Just, just get on a path. Just get on a path. And, and one day we'll all see, it'll become clear that the path all leads to the same place, the same God. We'll all get to the same destination. That's what people teach in our culture. That's what people believe in our culture. But if people believe that, they've got to do something with John 14, 6, don't they? They've got to say, well, Jesus was wrong, or he was an error, but they've got to deal with this verse. See, you can't say, a lot of people say this, well, you know, Jesus was a great moral teacher. I'm not a Christian, but I, I believe Jesus was a great moral teacher. Well, look what he taught. He taught exclusivity. He's a great teacher, you better listen to what he teaches, right? He taught exclusivity. So the Bible gives us explicit statements. Let me show you another one. Turn over to to Acts chapter 4. Let me show you two more. Acts chapter 4, verse 11. Peter is brought before the religious leaders because they healed a man in the name of Jesus in Acts chapter 3. And they're intimidating him and questioning him. And, And Peter just gets to the bottom line. Look what he says in Acts chapter 4, verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Listen to this, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else. Did you hear that? There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's pretty clear, isn't it? It's an explicit statement. There's salvation in no one else. So if you're saved, you're going to be saved by Jesus or you're not going to be saved. That's what Peter said. And let me show you another one. Turn it over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator. Not two, not three, not five, not fifteen. There is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ, Jesus. So who's the one mediator between a holy God and sinful men? Who brings sinful men, forgiven and washed and cleansed, into a relationship with the holy God? Who does that? Jesus. He's the only mediator between God and man. So it's an an explicit statement in God's word. And that's one of the ways the Bible teaches the exclusivity of Christ. But the Bible also teaches the exclusivity of Christ through the implications of who we are and who God is. The implications of who we are and who God is. And this is compelling. I'm going to walk you through this stuff very quickly. And after I walk you through this, hopefully you'll see why Jesus is our only hope. It's just so clear when you look at the entire teaching of the Word of God. So let me walk you through these one, two, three, four, five, six, seven things that help us understand why Jesus made these exclusive claims and why Jesus is the only way to heaven. First of all, God is holy. 
God is holy. That means he's a God of absolute moral perfection. Habakkuk says he's too pure to look upon evil. 1 John 1, 5 says that God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. So God is a God of absolute moral perfection. He is perfectly glorious, a God of total, unique moral majesty. And because he is holy and perfect and infinitely holy and perfect, sin cannot be in his presence. That make sense? God is holy. You've got to understand that if you're going to understand Jesus Christ being the only way to be saved. Not only is God holy, but we are sinners. We are sinners. Good old, good old Romans 3.10, There's none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 23, and there's a lot more verses that speak of our sinfulness, our depravity before God. And so God is holy, he's perfect, he is light, there's no darkness in him at all. So people who have rebelled against him, who have sinned, will not be in his presence. That leads us to the third thing. Sin separates us from God. That's what sin does. It's a separator. Isaiah 59, 2 says our, sin have, have, our sins have separated us between God. He's hidden his face from us because we have sinned against him. Romans six twenty three says the wages of sin is death. The Bible talks of two types of death, physical death, but it also talks of a second death, which is eternity in hell, which is eternity... Uh, an eternity of being separated from God. And so, because we've sinned, the wages, what we deserve is death. Separation from God forever and ever and ever and ever. God's holy, we've sinned, we've rebelled against Him, we've done things He's told us not to do, we've not done things He's told us to do, we've all sinned, and because we've sinned, there's a separation, and you might say a wall of impurity between us and a holy God. Which leads to the next thing. The only way to have our sin forgiven, the only way to have that wall of impurity taken away, the only way to have our sin forgiven against an infinitely holy God is to have one who is infinite pay the penalty for us. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 says that Christ died for our sins. You see, Jesus Christ being fully God, the second person of the Godhead who has existed for all of eternity past, Jesus Christ left the splendor and glory of heaven and took on humanity. Fully God, fully man. And as as one who was fully God, infinite himself, he could pay the infinite sin debt that we deserve to pay. We can't pay it unless we go to hell and pay it forever and ever. Jesus came as one who is infinite to pay that penalty for us. So we need God to die for us. Jesus Christ is God. But we also need, in your notes, a human to die in our place to satisfy the justice of God. In other words, because we've sinned as humanity, for God to punish our sin, he must punish a human in our place. So not only did we need one who is infinite to pay the infinite debt we deserve, we needed one who was human to take our place, to become our substitute. Look over in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He took on flesh and blood. He became a man that through death, death on a cross, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those, talking about us right here, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And so the Bible says Jesus Christ had to take on flesh and blood. He had to take on humanity so he could die in our place, a just substitute for humans, sinners against God. 
And so there is only one, only one in human history who is fully God and fully human that died for us. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love to us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ, fully God. Christ, fully man, robed in humanity. Christ died for us. He paid the infinite debt we deserve to pay against an infinitely holy God. He took the infinite punishment we deserve. And as a human, he took our place. The second Adam, he took our place. He died for us. And there's only one, listen, there's only one who is fully God and fully human that could die for us and pay that debt. Therefore, Jesus is the only way to be saved. So not only are we looking at explicit statements, we're just looking at the overall overarching teachings of the Bible. Who else in human history could be our Savior? Who else in human history could take our place justly and pay the infinite debt against an infinitely holy God that we deserve? No one but Jesus could do that and did do that. And so there's no other way to be reconciled to God, to have your sins forgiven, other than the God-man, Jesus Christ, who died in our place. No matter what religion you're talking about, what other group you're talking about, whatever world religion or, or cult or, or different denomination, listen to me. If they're not pointing you to Jesus the biblical Jesus, who is fully God, fully man, who died for the sins of the world, then they're going to lead you down a road that leads to hell. There's only one way. The Bible is so clear when you understand its overarching teaching. So wait, what should we do with this information that Jesus Christ is the only way? Well, I love what John MacArthur says. He writes, Now is not the time to make friends with the world. It is certainly no time to capitulate to world cries for pluralism and inclusivism. Pluralism, the idea that all roads lead to God, and inclusivism is, hey, we should just, you know, everybody, just, everybody, whatever you want to do is fine, just do what you want to do, all right? You want to worship that over here, whatever you want to do, all right? Everybody's good. He writes, unless we recover our conviction that Christ is the only way to heaven, the evangelical movement will become increasingly weak and irrelevant. In other words, we've got to stand on this conviction that the Bible teaches Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. And to to compromise, to capitulate with this conviction is the most, listen to me, is the most unloving thing the church could do. See, we're accused of, well, that's narrow-minded and that's unloving and you're just mean. No. No. The most loving thing we could say to a lost and dying world is, there's only one way. Turn to Christ. He died for you. He rose from the grave. He loves you. Turn to Him. That's the most loving thing we could do. Let's just say that that you were driving and there was a, a fork in the road. One road leads to a bridge that's, that's fallen. There's no bridge there. The bridge is washed out. And so if you go down that road, you'll, you'll go over the edge and die. The other road crosses a, a, a great river, but the bridge is intact. And let's just say that I'm there at that, that 
that fork in the road, and I'm the only one that knows that information. I know that if you go this way, you'll die. If you go this way, you'll live. Now, would you say it's narrow-minded for me to say, hey, take this, take this, take this route? Would that be narrow-minded? Would that be mean for me to point you the way that leads to life? What if I said, you know, hey, I believe it's this way, but, you know, whatever you want to... Hey, if you, if you have another belief, if you think this road's better, go ahead. It's fine. It's fine. No, I would say if I didn't tell folks that that road led to destruction, I would be very unloving. Right? Right? So I want you to understand that, that believing this stuff, I don't care what the, the networks and the media says, believing these things is not unloving. The most loving thing we can do is hold fast to the truth and share with the lost and dying world there is a way to be saved, but there's only one way to be saved. And whenever we have a platform to say it, we need to say it. Which is why I'm so concerned that we have these, these mega personalities that are under the banner of Christendom that get on you know, Larry King or whatever, and they can't say, Jesus is the only way to heaven. That concerns me. I think that if you can't say on national television that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, you ought to have your pastor license revoked. There is no pastor license, but if there was, you need to have it revoked. Your ordination taken away, right? You don't need a pastor. You don't need to call yourself a pastor. You're a wolf. You're a heretic. There's only one way. And that's not mean. That is loving and compassionate to tell folks the truth. You see, folks have no problem being narrow-minded with other things, right? Two plus two equals four. Right? If I, when I was in school, if I wrote 2 plus 2 equals 5 and I got an X, I didn't go to my teacher and say, cut me some slack. It's, I mean, it's fine, right? Five. If I want to believe it's 5, then that's okay, right? Let's be more inclusive around this classroom. No. No, that got me, I got marked off if I got the math question wrong. When you go to your doctor, you want them telling you the truth, don't you? Not what you want to hear. But what you need to hear. So if there's an issue, you can deal with it. You see, we're, we're very exclusive in other areas of life. But when it comes to religion, people want to be inclusive and people want to be pluralistic and people want to say, well, that's just kind of mean and narrow-minded for you to say that. No, no, no. We are just standing on the truth of the Word of God, grateful for Jesus that provides a way for us to be saved and pointing people to Him. And that is the most loving thing we can do. Listen, and if we can't do that, we ought to close our doors because we become a, just a social club of people meeting together. Irrelevant, powerless, lacking compassion for a lost and dying world. Amen? And so, there's only one way to get to heaven. And he said, wait, how does that deal with my troubled heart? Well, look at that next statement. The fact that there is a heaven and we know the way to heaven should ease our troubled hearts. In other words, if you've embraced Jesus, you've embraced the way, the truth, the life. Listen to me. You can have confidence that you're going to heaven when you die. Not because you're good, but because Jesus died for your sins on the cross. He rose from the grave. And when you embraced him by repentance and faith, his shed blood, his finished work was applied to your spiritual account and your sins were washed away. Thereby you can be reconciled 
brought into relationship with a holy God in this life and step into heaven, into his presence, and be with him forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. That's good news, isn't it? So these exclusive claims, and knowing the truth about these exclusive claims, gives us confidence. Let me give you one more quote from James Montgomery Boyce. What is a Christian to do when the world he knows falls in? By the way, if you live long enough, your world will fall in, won't it? Life has a way of just turning upside down, caving in, valleys, hardships. What is a Christian to do when the world he knows falls in? What is he to do in the day of great trouble? The answer, once again, is that he is to take himself in hand and by deliberate exercise of mind in which he brings such great truths as these to remembrance, increase his faith in God. He is to remind himself of and then meditate upon God's great strength and promises. In other words, Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled. He gave gave them information, things they needed to know. If we'll learn these things that Jesus gave his disciples and by extension gave us, We'll meditate upon these things, fix these things in our mind. Even when we're hurting, even when we're struggling, even when we're suffering, we can have this eternal perspective. And that anxiety, that weight, that burden will be lifted from our hearts. We do not have to walk around with troubled hearts. Do you hear me? We do not have to walk around with troubled hearts. Christians who know their sins are forgiven, who know they're going to heaven when they die, who know that there's a line to live for, not just a dot. Christians can live even through sorrow and pain with an unfading joy. And can I say this? Unfading joy gets folks' attention. When lost folks see you living with joy in the midst of your struggles, they say, what is going on with them? And how do I get some of that? 